Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Sanford University. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Leandro Prados de la Escosura. He's uh, Emeritus Professor at Carlos III University in Madrid, Spain. And he's also a research fellow at CPR. I'm very happy to be here with you, Leandro. How are you? Fine, thank you. And thanks for having me, Javier. Uh, this is a great opportunity to uh, uh, t- talking to you again after a long time. So it's great. It's been a while. It, it's been a while for uh, those of you who don't know you. You're um, um, a very well-known figure for economic historians um, of the Hispanic world and almost a, le- a legend. So... I'm always very, very happy to to be with you. And as a legend, I would like to hear your version of how you ended up becoming that legend. Tell us a bit about who you are. Maybe we can start the conversation from there. <laughs> Calling you a legend is, is telling putting you a, a bit of pressure on you. You're very old, is basically. You know, it's when, when someone introduces introduces you and tells a long list of publications and books. This is very bad news because it means that you are very near the end. So <laughs> thanks, but not thanks. Uh, no, I, uh, as you know, uh, economic history, and particularly if you see it from the from the US, is is an Anglo-Saxon discipline. Uh, and uh, cleometrics, which is probably the you know the the state of the art today, and is you know probably is the common uh, commodity uh, across the world of economic historians, is in in its origin uh, also an American good. But I would say that there is also a tradition uh, in Europe, and I think in Latin America, and I would dare to say that also in Africa, that it that connects to economic development with concern 
about the long run. So I would say that if you look at uh, the way, for instance, international institutions, let's say the World Bank, if you look at the, 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 the Latin American and the Caribbean office of, of the World Bank, you will see that in the reports there is a lot of economic history. The same happens for Africa to less extent. So I think that economic history, uh, the less developed the, the country or the region, the most relevant for their present. So it it has a much more important role in our countries. I mean, look at your own country. Jose Antonio Campo, an old friend of mine, he's an, an outstanding economic historian, and he's been in government so many times. Guido Di Tella in, in, in Argentina, he ended up being the foreign secretary. Or Cavallo, or, you know, you, you can go country by country and, and finding economic historians in, in top political or economic uh, positions in, in the administration. And uh, uh, for, for, for the same token, you could say that if, if there is a, an important historic historical contribution for a Southern European country or for a Latin American country, it's going to percolate through the press and it's going to be present in in, uh, in daily debates. This is not so common in Anglo-Saxon countries. History is something from the past. It's not that relevant. I mean, Ben Bernanke, for instance, uh, work on the, the Depression, that was relevant for the present, or what Barry Eichengreen does. But it's not that often to, not that often to find economic history contributions in the, in the advanced world that are relevant for daily uh, issues and and, uh, and current political debates. So I think this is, a, a, from my, my perspective, this is a major difference in, in the economic history uh, than at the core at what we could say the economic history in the periphery. Um, I, I love what you're saying, which is something that I am very curious about, right? How um, academic spheres are constructed in different regions and and I think you point out to something that it's very very important, right? How the relevance of economic history is uh, probably um, more important in places like Latin America or uh, maybe Sub-Saharan Africa, where economic challenges are probably are probably stronger. But and I want to ask you more about that. But before that, I, I would like to understand a bit how. Did you end up being an economic historian? Were you aware of this importance of economic history and that's why you decided to become an economic historian? Or it was like an exposed like reflection and that tell, tell, tell me a bit about I that. Think it, it connects to the, the previous question. And I found out after a while that what I'm going to tell you is not that original because I have friends in Brazil that went through the same experience, friends in, in former socialist European countries that went through the same uh, or very similar experience. You know, I, I, I was at the university, you know, in my days, there was a five-year degree in economics. So it was basically a BA plus an MA or MSc together. And in, in, in those days, uh, there was a lot of interest. In I was at the university from 1968 to 73. There was a, a lot of interest among young economists 
in political uh, and social issues, basically because we were living under a dictatorship. And we, it was, we it was Spain, Spain, right? Yeah, it was Spain. Uh, it was Franco's Spain. And we were trying to understand, I think, that was a generational concern, trying to understand why we had had uh, such an enviable position of living in a relatively backward country in, ter- in, in, in economic terms and even more in political terms. And in my generation, there was there have been many economic historians. I mean, I don't think in Spain there has been a, any a, any group of economic historians for the next generations because they didn't have this kind of motivation. So we, we were interested in the past in order to understand the situation in which we were living. I remember uh, uh, talking to a, um, a Hungarian uh, colleague who told me this is exactly what happened to to my generation as well. And I remember talking to, uh, uh, to friends in, in Brazil and, and they had been through the same experience, you know, under uh, uh, the uh, Brazilian dictatorship, they became interested in, in economic history. And economic history was also safer from a political perspective when mm-hmm. doing research in, in economic history. So there we, and, and I must also tell you that there is, was an element of chance because I was interested in, in long-term issues, but I was an economist, so I, I was thinking, working on growth and development and so on. But uh, the only really good people I found uh, in academia were economic historians. There was a particular professor who was uh, an economist by training, quite unusual, and who was uh, was applying Ricardian economics to uh, 18th century Spanish agriculture. And then we had uh, in Spain a very good influence that was the return of Gabriel Tortella from uh, the U.S. Gabriel had been, you know, in Spain, let, let me just add, add another element, and, um, and please stop me when I'm talking too much. Uh, oh, Spain was internationally connected until the, the, the Civil War, and then was cut off from the rest of the world. And only in the mid-late 60s, there were people going abroad again. So there was a generation of young economists who left in the early 60s for the U.S., and Gabriel, who was a lawyer by training, did a PhD, uh, PhD in economics at Wisconsin in, uh, at a time that Wisconsin was top in, in economic history. I mean, John Cosworth, for instance, in Latin American history were, was there, but many, many others, important people. And there were also young faculty, such as uh, Jeff Williamson and Peter Linder, who were more or less same age. Uh, and Gabriel was uh, interested for political reasons in economic history, but became an economist. And so he started applying economics to, to history. And he was not was a kind of elder brother or mentor of some young people. And he was instrumental in, in persuading us to leave. So when in 1970, because uh, at that time, the country, as I was saying, was cut off from the rest of the world, so there were no grants. It was quite difficult to get abroad. So I managed, and there were no public funding for research. So I got a grant from a private institution, and I ended up at Oxford. Other people, like Pablo Martín Aceña, you may, may, may know, 
a monetarian historian. He ended up at Toronto. So there, but we were very few. And well, we we learned the trade. And at that time, we were influenced by the heliometric work. I remember uh, Peter Temin's uh, reader uh, about new economic history, you know, a penguin little book that was affordable for us poor students. So we learned from those uh, uh, articles. And echliometrics at that time was relatively simple. Basically, it was applying basic economic analysis to revise uh, perceptions uh, by historians in which there was not explicit model. There was some, several, several implicit models. So it was a lot of fun applying our very, very rusty tools to put upside down what historians have thought so far. So there was, I remember, we, there was obviously a lag with respect to American or British geometrics. So everything happened with a, with a decalage. Uh, but I remember Pablo Martin Gasseña and I edited a book called The New Economic History in Spain that was a, a, a conference in English, although the book in, uh, came out in Spanish, and that was published back in 1985. So it was when we were coming back and, and connecting to other people who had been abroad. So it was quite exciting. Um, and well, this is basically you know, why I, I started uh, uh, working on economic history, because I was, politi- I was politically motivated. Obviously, we were all uh, very left-wing because we were living under a, a conservative, a very you know, authoritarian right-wing dictatorship. It would have been the other way if we have been living in Poland, perhaps, or in, in Hungary. But it was quite uh, stimulating. And I, would, uh, and I was uh, very fortunate to go when I went to Oxford, because I'm, just to give you a, the flavor, Franco has pa- passed away in, on November 75, and I left for Oxford in July 76. The, the, the day Prime Minister Suarez was the, the, the man who, who, who was driving the transition to democracy from, from, the, from the Francoist regime, uh, was appointed Prime Minister. So, you know, I left at the time in which everything was starting to change in Spain. And, you know, I had been teaching at the Spanish University for three years, because you know there were many openings, universities were expanding. Now it's unthinkable, you know. But I finished my degree at 22, and I was teaching immediately after. But then I realized, you know, I cannot keep te- teaching when all I have to do is to learn. You know, I cannot be one day, one week ahead of my students. So I went to Oxford, and I was a student of Max Atwell, who I, I don't know if he, if you if the name rings a bell to you. But he had a big debate with Hosborn about living standards in Britain during the Industrial Revolution. He was Australian. And, you know, he was my first supervisor. And then Patrick O'Brien took over. He had been his, his student. And it was very interesting for me because I was learning the trade uh, through seminars, through conversations with people. And also I was removing all the ideological rubbish I had accumulated through living under an authoritarian regime. Because obviously, you know, in my generation, we were all 
Martians, and then you realize that things are more complex, or you keep some, you know, and still have some interest for Marxism, but obviously you, you become more open-minded to other ideas. And so it was very interesting. And also at Oxford, uh, since you are from Colombia, I must tell you that for me, Latin America was a discovery I, I, I made at Oxford. Because in Spain, there was all this rhetoric about the empire, but nothing real. So when I went to Oxford and met, for instance, Marco Palacios, that mm-hmm. um, distinguished uh, Colombian economic historian, um, so many others, and was, you know, a, was a, a great encounter, you know, to meet all these distinguished people, Ezequiel Gallo for uh, Argentina, Cortés Conde, you know, so many others, and it was very, very exciting. So, well, I, I don't know if I just gave you the flavor of why None. coming from a country in which at that time being an economic historian was as unusual as being a bullfighter in Japan, you know, I, <laughs> I became an economic historian. No, it's, I mean, the story you're telling me is fascinating and, and I love it because it mixes both this like macro forces and the role that comes of the fact that you were exposed to an authoritarian regime and also the role of just randomness and idiosyncratic facts, like the influence of of some of the the other scholars and and professors that you that you just like happened to to meet. So I actually want to ask you about that. So when you then return to Spain, you probably become one of these figures. So I'm sure if I'm gonna interview like the following generation of Spaniard scholars in economic history probably your name is going to come up and they're going to say well leandro had arrived and how was that process right how what did it what did it mean to come back and like train a new generation of economic historians exposed to a different new world but still interested in questions of the past tell me a bit about that yeah that's uh, i i like the question because you see, uh, in those days, we were not living in a global world. That's a major difference. You know, now when I see young people, including my, my, my own children, they go abroad, uh, they study there, and they never come back because they live in a global world. What's the point? But in, in my days, you were supposed to return home. And usually, you know, we were so parochial that we would work on our own countries. You know, I wouldn't dare to work on France and Britain, even though Patrick O'Brien was working on Britain and France. I was tempted, but I kept working on Spain. But the inter- the, there was something that happened to me in the meantime. You know, I was meant to come back to Spain like everybody else. There were two, two anecdotes I want to tell you. One was that foreign degrees were not acceptable in Spain at the time. So I was doing a, 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 a DPhil, as they call it at Oxford, a PhD in, at Oxford, but it didn't have any validity in Spain. So at some point, I was lucky to be informed that the Bank of Spain had a big historical project about its origins, and they wanted to have uh, recruit people to do research. So, you know, I stopped at Oxford, went back home, worked for the Bank of Spain, wrote a dissertation, 
presented my dissertation in economics in Madrid and went back to Otto. Okay? <laughs> so I ended up unintendedly with two doctorates. I remember people telling me, if you already have a PhD, why do you want to have a second one? And I always, my answer was, because my supervisor, Patrick O'Brien, always taught me, you have to finish what you have started. <laughs> so, and I, I did it. And the other thing is that I, I was teaching um, in 84, 85 at UCSD, you know, near where you are. And, and I was tempted, and in fact, there were some openings at the time, and I was tempted to stay because I saw, you know, this that was paradise. And I met Peter Linder in the old campus, California uh, conference, and I attended the first, no, this, it was the first cleometric meeting at Evanston, Illinois, organized by Joel Mokir. And uh, so it was so exciting that I thought, well, I want to stay here. And, and I have some chances to stay. But then Gabriel Tortella, this guy I mentioned before, uh, wrote to me a very emotional letter telling me about his 13-year experience in the U.S. And he told me, you know, probably you're going to publish less, uh, but you... You can do things in Spain that you could couldn't do in the in the U.S., such as putting together a team. So I went back. I and you never know. You know, there is a counterfactual life, academic life there. But uh, what I found about Spain was that obviously everything was a challenge because, for instance, I, I learned how to debate with other colleagues, even with senior colleagues, but keep being friends. In Spanish academics at the time, if you would disagree with a big cow, <laughs> you would become, you would make an enemy. So that happens to some of us, you know. We were, out of respect, we were criticizing people, you know, as, as my old friend, the late uh, uh, Stefano Fenaltea used to say, you know, if, if someone doesn't criticize your work, it's because it's not taking you seriously <laughs> enough. So, you know, out of respect, I would criticize my elders, and they didn't like it. So, you know, I had to learn also how to relate to them. But there are a couple of interesting things. For instance, I organized a, um, a quantitative economic history seminar, the first one in '83 in, in Madrid. And, but, uh, you know, I, I like uh, seminars, so I thought it, I would like to attend a seminar. But I discovered that in, in developing countries, if you want to have a seminar, then fine. It's very easy. You organize a seminar. Uh, if you want to publish a paper in a local journal, first you create the journal. So it's, it's very entrepreneurial. And in this uh, respect, although I was the, or, the one organizing the seminars, <clears throat> Gabriel Tortella was very important because he managed to convert a, a traditional and respected uh, journal, Revista de Economía Política, into the first peer-reviewed uh, journal in, in economics in Spain. Revista de Historia Económica, that at the time he was the editor, then I was the editor, and now there, there have been different generations, and now it's published by Cambridge University Press in English. But it was a peer-reviewed uh, journal right from the beginning. You know? and So it was very exciting, and um, I was in Alcalá, in one of Madrid universities, 
there was some mobility at the time. Now there is practically very little mobility. You know, uh, uh, most people in Spain, if they, they, they end their career when they start, but that wasn't at the time. So I moved to different places and ended up being part of Carlos III University. I was the, the first professor in economics, actually, in 1990. <clears throat> Not because I was the elder, but because I was in another university and they wouldn't allow me to to be on on, on loan, you know, on lease, some sort of. So I, I moved and I had the opportunity to put together a team of economic historians within the economics department. And that was a great challenge. Um, but obviously, uh, egos, as you know, in, in Latin countries are huge. Um, so the department ended up uh, into three, four departments, although we kept the same culture. Um, there had been, you know, very good people in the department. We had all the downside of the Latin system, which means that everything is highly regulated wages are low and you you're paid in kind because you you are surrounded by young people uh, very enthusiastic uh, very dynamic but at the end of the day when you grow up and have a family you're in trouble so we've been a kind of um, de facto a postdoctoral program for other universities so if you just think i mean you you we met last time with alejandra Rigoy. alejandra one of her first jobs was at Carlos III, uh, Regina Graffi as well, uh, Alan Dai, you know, a distinguished historian of, of Cuba, uh, Juan Flores, uh, who's now in Geneva. Um, um, and, you know, there are so many people. I mean, Marcus Lampe, who's now professor mm-hmm. at Vienna, or Juan Rosés. And, and, and we were very successful because our people would jump to other universities, but they move up. So, you know, for instance, Joan Rosset moved from associate to full professor. I mean, that was quite common. So we're very proud, like, you know, uh, one of those uh, football or soccer teams that are very meritocratic, but they don't have enough money to keep their best players. So we were very proud of having our best players pl- playing in, in the top leagues. Um, so it was a kind of, uh, you know, um, a negative selection, so that's why I stayed. You know, I, <laughs> I didn't leave. The bad ones remained. Right. I mean, you just needed um, some money from the Gulf to to keep the people active there. But it's, I mean, it's it's when you're describing all this process and you bring up all these names, I think it's clear that I mean you've contributed to creating an entire school. I mean, you are presenting it very modestly as a postdoc-like program or something, but it's like basically the basis of, of what it's an entire generation of economic historians that are uh, have done like massive contributions. And, well, and let, let me tell you something that I haven't mentioned is that uh, when I was asked, because Carlos III was an attempt, they had been done with Autonomous University in Madrid and Barcelona in the late 60s. But Pompeo Fabre, UPF and, and us, were the, the second attempt in the late 80s. So they start from scratch. They were not vested interest in the selection of faculty. So what they decided is 
we're going to look for people who have been trained abroad and who are either abroad or at home, but they want to contribute to create this group. So I was luck, very fortunate to have this uh, the, this uh, assignment of putting together a group. For instance, James Simpson, that you probably know him, is a very distinguished agricultural historian. Pedro Fraile, who was a student of Walt Whitman Rostow, who did very good political economy history. Antonio Tena, and then and a long list that, that came after that. And we started as a small group of people, um, and we uh, brought new, you know, usually recent graduates to uh, our team. They stayed for a few years, and most of them ended up leaving. But, but you know, I, I remember the late Francesco Galasso, or now we have... Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite an international group still. You know, you have Stefano Batilosi, Stefan Haug, uh, James Simpson. Uh, we have Leo Kukic. You know, I mean, it's, it's quite, uh, for, for la- Latin standards, I think you understand what I mean, it's quite unusual to have such an inter- international combination uh, uh, for so many years. And, and right from the beginning, our seminars and our graduate courses were in English. You could say in in this Spanglish that I speak, for instance. And now more and more we've been teaching even undergraduates in English. So it's been a closer and closer connection to to the global world. It's it's great that we're having this conversation. I think we don't have many pieces where we can reflect on how the institutionality of academia emerges. And, and so it's great that we, we're having the chance to talk about this. But let me change gears a bit because the reason I wanted to talk to you was that you published recently a, a, a pretty interesting book that it's called Human Development and the Path to Freedom, 1870 to the Present, right? And... You're going to tell me a bit more about this book in a bit, but I I would like to start talking about it with um, what seems to be one of the motivations behind your agenda that is eventually um, the body of the book, which is some concern about the GDP as a, as a measure of well-being, right? So I, I want to ask you about that. What's the problem with GDP it's been criticized for a long, long time, but it's still the basic measure that uh, we bring when we're having pretty much any type of conversation about the performance, the economic performance of society. So what's your view on it, right? Why is it, what has it been so, uh, or what has made it so resilient to those critiques, or are those critiques not not totally fair? And I don't know. I want to hear what uh, what you think about this. Well, let me tell you that you know, for someone who finds this book, uh, might end up thinking that I'm against GDP. Of course not. I have spent ten years for sure, but probably more than to, closer to 20 years working on GDP reconstruction, you know, uh, because one of the things that you know from uh, 
you, your own Latin American experience is that uh, what in the Anglo-Saxon uh, sphere is taken for granted that someone built the series. Here, if you want to have any series about anything, you have to start from scratch. And if you belong to my generation, <laughs> that obviously means that there is no... there. Are, Except Hamilton's work and others for the early modern period, most of the or for a pioneer who was Joan Sardá, who who published, believe it or not, in the Quarterly Journal of Economic History in, in the late forties, a paper about uh, prices in nineteenth-century Spain. You know? But apart from that, it was quite unusual. You had to start from scratch. So <clears throat> I started worrying. You know, in in when I started interested in being interested in economic history, people still would use the production of steel or the production of coal or the imports of cotton. Even though Paul Verrock, who's now forgotten, did his best to put some guesstimates. And it was, I think, Angus Madison, the person who encouraged uh, an international movement in favor of of applying to the past what was the, the norm for the present. Although there were important pioneers, Phyllis Dean, Charles Feinstein, for me Charles Feinstein was inspirational, or Walter Hoffman in Germany, or Jean-Claude Toutain for France, and so on. So I met, I had done some estimates, very preliminary estimate for, for GDP for my Spanish doctoral dissertation that, you know, I published a book 40 years ago that gives you an idea about trade and growth in 19th century Spain. But when I met in the mid-80s Angus Madison, and we became immediate, immediately friends because we were talking about the Spanish Civil War and one of his uncles had been fighting in, the, in Spain. Uh, we became friends immediately, and he started persuading me to work on on uh, historical national accounts. And um, he did the same to many people. Sometimes I wonder uh, what have been my life without ten years of having uh, Angus breathing on my neck about what have you done. I mean, just to give you an, an anecdote, uh, I I produced the first. The book I published, the first book I published on GDP was published in 2003. But in 1993, I had some preliminary uh, figures. And then Angus uh, was always borrowing what I had. And I saw in The Economist once, uh, there was economic focus, a section in The Economist, and there was a, a figure with GDP for several countries. And I saw Spain say, how come? I'm the only one who's crazy enough to do this. Um, it looks like my series. And it was Angus who had been so enthusiastic that he was using it. So I, I thanked him. But 10 years later, when I published my book, I had people saying, oh, it is very reassuring that your new estimates are so close to Madison's. <laughs> <laughs> so and that was Angus. So I I'd allocated so much effort to put together GDP series. And in fact, Angus wanted me to go back to Roman uh, Spain. And in fact, with my co-author, Carlos Alvarez Nogal, and uh, later on with Carlos Santiago Caballero, we went back to the Middle Ages. So now we have Spain GDP estimates, you know, more 
indirect estimates up to 1850, and then what has been my personal work from 1850 to the present. You know, I've done GDP, capital stock and services, TFP, you know, unit, all this. So this is to, to giving you a long answer to a very precise question. The question is why um, I have shifted. It's not that I have shifted. It's that I, ha- I, I, I read Simon Kuznets closely. Simon Kuznets in the early 50s was always warning us that GDP is, is an arguable measure of output, but it's not a measure of well-being. And economists keep saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking of John Sanclano, uh, excellent paper beyond GDP in the American Economic Review in 2006, 2016, and they say GDP provides an informative indicator of welfare. Because they, conf- they find that in the long run, the two met- metrics, the, the index they, they built, and GDP coincide. And <clears throat> so many economists, very distinguished British economists, Alton, oh, says, well, a- anything you can tell me about well-being is highly correlated with uh, GDP. So at the end of the day, they say, well, this is a, a rough and ready uh, way of, of capturing uh, well-being. So on, I started thinking about that. I, I was never persuaded. And, and then what, what I thought, I started reading, I remember a paper published almost 40 years ago by Amartya Sen, in which he talks about well-being and says there are three approaches to well-being. One is the opulence, is this, this word, is everything related to income and wealth. There is the welfare approach based on utility, uh, on satisfaction of desire. And he says, well, this is uh, another approach. And in fact, you could say subjective well-being indices derived from this welfare uh, approach. And he says, he said, but my approach is freedom, which is obviously a bit arrogant because what he says, well-being is basically about enlarging people's choices. And this makes a difference because well-being is not just what you achieve in terms of a longer and healthier life or in, uh, in terms of access to knowledge or in terms of having a decent living standard or not living in shame. All this is, is very important. But even more important is the, the possibility of choosing between alternative uh, alternative achievements. So I put it in the book in a very uh, extreme way. You can have healthy life, access to knowledge, healthy and long life, and a decent living standard in a high security prison in Finland. But this is not what most people would choose. Most people would prefer to live in a slum in, in Rio de Janeiro. So enlarging people's choices matters. So what I I have done in the book is I started from this very crude indicator, SEN Inspires, which is a human development index, but has been there for for 30 years. And he half joking with Ulhak, Ulhak, I think, I don't know, I cannot, I don't know the exact 
Pakistani pronunciation, but this e economist was the person behind uh, Human Development Index. And he was a close friend of, of Amartya Sen, and Sen has told the story several times. And basically what they agreed is that GDP was a vulgar metric, but it was a synthetic index. And human development, the human development index would be as vulgar as GDP, but with much more information. And I think that was a, a good idea. But I think it's, it's something more, because adds this dimension of choice, adding choice to these achievements. This is what, what Sen calls the capability approach. So what I've been doing, I've been doing two things. One is uh, reconstructing, you know, I'm a number crunching you know, after doing GDP for so many years. So what I've been is trying to get the best data on years of schooling, uh, GDP per head, uh, a life expectancy at birth, and also adding the freedom dimension. But I've done two things. One is going back to the origin of the concept of human development, which is not just adding the dimension, because going back to to my personal story about Franco-Spain, when I saw in 1990 the first release of the Human Development Index, I was, uh, they, they had a kind of retrospective going back to 1975. And to my distress, I found that Franco Spain in 1975, and I can tell you I was an adult, I was teaching at the university, I was 24 years old, very old. Uh, Franco Spain was among the top countries in terms of human development. And I thought, it cannot be. And obviously, that didn't match the definition Sen was providing of human development, which is enlarging people's choices. Here, there was no choice. Cuba is another example. Cuba has always been at the top, but obviously it, it's not. There is nothing wrong with having a good health system. The problem is that people cannot choose, and that is, goal, is, is a metric of well-being, but it's not well-being in the sense of alerting people's choices. So I thought I had to add this element. I presented the, this uh, book recently at the United Nations Development Program in, 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 in New York. And they are very concerned about the mismatch between democracy liberties and, and other indicators. And I was, they were interested in finding that an independent, an academic, an independent scholar was adding Mm. freedom, because uh, the, the, the whole ranking changes. I mean, you, you can put countries upside down when you introduce the, the, the freedom dimension, but obviously there is a, a political, a serious political issue. If you add a, a freedom, there is um, someone called Klassen who, in an article, mentions why. Uh, basically, is that some countries in the United Nations threaten to give up contributing to the UNDP simply because they did, they were not prepared to accept to be put in in a in a very uncomfortable position. So uh, I did that, and I also added something which is very technical, but in a nutshell, is that taking into account two things of the data that the HDI uses. One is that unlike GDP. 
the rest of variables, life expectancy at birth or years of schooling, are bounded variables, which means that, you know, the same absolute uh, uh, change represents a smaller increase the higher you are in the, in the, in the ladder. So that provi- produces a kind of spurious uh, convergence. So the, mm-hmm. the message is curious. The message of the HDI uh, report is very pessimistic, but the numbers are very optimistic. So how come? <laughs> and this is because there is this spurious correlation. So and there, oh, there is also that you're using very crude variables, such as life expectancy at birth or years of education, to proxy something that inc- incorporates qualities such as a healthy and long life, satisfactory life, or access to knowledge. So I found for the recent past that increases in quantity and increases in quantity are highly correlated. So, which means that when people live longer, this doesn't mean that people live more years in bad health and they're more boring elderly people like myself. No, it's not that. It's that there is a morbidity compression, which means that years live in disability decline. So when people live longer, that means that the health of every age cohort improves. And the same happens with education. More use of education imply that better people are better educated. Uh, children and adolescents are better educated than before. So I introduce a transformation that is obviously arguable, which is uh, Kakwani's uh, convex instead of, of concave transformation. And this is the second element. And let me just add one more thing. Is when, when I presented this... Uh, a book to, to the, the United Nations people, uh, there were two distinguished uh, academics in, in the audience. One is John Devereaux, who has done very important work on, for example, Cuba and Puerto Rico, and Branko Milanovic, who's not an economic historian, but who has very good economic historian. And Branko has written a couple of, of um, posts in his blog. He has, you know, nearly, I think, nearly 200,000 readers, so it's quite influential. And he wrote a couple of posts and was fortunate that he was mentioning my my presentation. And he introduced a very interesting issue. He was saying that agency is is an important element, Um, you know, uh, what you would call also negative freedoms, you know, uh, civil rights, I'm sorry. But democracy, you know, what you would call positive uh, collective freedom, is, is less obvious. So it, it was a very interesting conversation. But I, I, was, I was glad that he, even he didn't, we didn't agree, that he was accepting the idea that you cannot talk about well-being without taking into account freedom. And I think uh, for, for probably for, for people in the advanced world, this is it's so obvious that they are, they are rich, but they are also free. But this is not that obvious for the rest of the world, not for, 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 for those who come from where I come from, and not for people who come from Latin America or Africa or Asia or former socialist Europe. So it's not that obvious that well-being uh, 
material well-being goes together with other dimensions of well-being that make you really be uh, uh, happier and, and uh, experiencing more well, well-being or welfare. So that, that was... So this is basically, in a nutshell, I mean, I'm talking too much, as usual, uh, but this is... But and let me just add that, uh, obviously, it didn't occur to me only. I mean, uh, in the Sarkozy report, Fitus, Sen, and uh, and Stiglitz have advocated for broadening the picture. Uh, Angus Deaton, who's for me, uh, Amartya Sen and Angus Deaton are the main sources, and, and then probably Branko Milanovic and, and Christian Morrison, but Deaton and, and Sen are probably the main influences. I remember uh, uh, Angus Deaton writing that for him, well-being includes, let me read, income, wealth, less life satisfaction, education, and participation in a democratic society under the, the, the rule of law. So I think this is a view that will be debated and, uh, and the technical approach I'm using will be arguable, probably rejected and improved and overcome. But I think my modest contribution is to say, well, <laughs> uh, development, as Sen used to say, development, you have to, to, to see it as freedom. That's why I call, you know, in a, in a kind of homage to Sen, human development and the path to freedom. Because I think achieving a, a, a healthier and longer life, achieving access to knowledge, achieving a decent uh, standard of material standard of living put you in in the path to 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 be in control of of your own life and let me tell you just to to finish this because I cannot refrain myself in the book I have two quotes only one quote comes from Marx and Engels uh, that's you know a, a reminiscence from my Marxian days in which they end up saying that the, the task or the challenge for people, and they're writing in 1846, is replacing the domination of circumstances and of chance over individuals by the domination of individuals over chance and circumstances. So Mar Marx and Engels already had in mind uh, the freedom as an element of well-being. But it's very interesting that someone in the in, in, the, in the other side of the spectrum, uh, uh, Friedrich Hayek, in his Road to Serfdom in 1944, says that is the new sense of power over, over their own fate, they believe in the unbounded possibility of improving their own lot, which the success already achieved created among men. So it's very interesting that from a um, Martian and a liberal perspective, they agree that, that uh, uh, well-being is about something else than material or health or educational achievements. So this is basically the message of the book. Let, let, let me take that a bit like those quotes and, and your idea of this as a story of where humanity is coming from and where it's going in terms of well-being and ask you about how you would describe that path 
that that path for the moment right what is this an optimistic story like are we moving from a world of hardship and less freedom to one of better living conditions and more freedom or what's the takeaway in terms of the patterns at a global level i'm going to ask you in a bit about what are the heterogeneity and and the differences across the world but like overall as as humanity what's what's the big takeaway if one pays attention to your data let, let me tell you that uh, obviously i'm as an economic historian, I have to be optimistic because economic history is a very, I mean, I remember when when uh, Robert Gordon and Joel Mokir a few years ago had an argument about technological project, progress and, and uh, uh, Bob Gordon was so pessimistic and, and uh, Joel knew better because he knows history. I, I cannot be pessimistic being an economic historian. But you can always say that it, the, the bottle is half empty or half full. So I would say uh, well-being in measure as human development has improved remarkably. You know, has multiplied several times, like five times, say. Uh, but we still have way of the maximum we can achieve. So that's important. Uh, we live longer and in healthier terms. We have better access to knowledge. We have more uh, material well-being to, to have a decent life. And we enjoy more freedom than before. But this has not been... Firstly, there is obviously an, an uneven distribution of these achievements that we can talk uh, and there is a lot of room for improvement. So it's a moderately optimistic message. It's, I would say, compared to GDP, which is the metric people have in mind, the message is more optimistic. But you can find that still, I mean, I have that's why I have a chapter on Latin America and a chapter on Sub-Saharan Africa to tell you what the challenges are. I mean, the challenges are you need to continue increasing morbidity compression, which means living longer but living in better conditions, uh, increasing the quality of education, even though they are highly correlated quantity and quality of education. In Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa, the quality of education is not as good as it should be. Or there is the challenge of the rise of populism and illiberal democracy in different parts of the world, and this is obviously... Uh, 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 an obstacle to the spread of negative freedoms and, and, and political democracy. So I think there are challenges, but on balance, you know, this from 150 years persp perspective, the message is moderately optimistic. And the other thing I would like to say, I mean, there are two more things I, I don't know if you were thinking of asking, but one of them is about distribution. But the main one is about how human development compares to GDP per head. Because if uh, we are not using GDP per head, uh, probably is it's fair to say, well, tell us how how they differ and why. So I'm 
if you're interested, I'm happy to tell you my views. I, I would like to hear about that. But before that, I, I, I want to hear more about, again, what type of story is this one? And now I want to ask you about global inequality in the sense that, again, some countries have done better than others. What's the big takeaway in terms of who have been the winners and the losers? And how do you think about that? Uh, the, the story of why, in terms of GDP, we underperform compared to uh, human development has also an impact on why, in terms of distribution, the message is much more optimistic using human development. Because obviously, uh, the spread of uh, achievements in terms of health or in terms of education or in terms of freedom have been unevenly distributed as, as in terms of, of, of per capita income. But whereas in, uh, if you compare what happens to a GDP per head, think of Branko Milanovic, a big picture of Morrison and uh, Bourguignon and Morrison or Van Sanden and his collaborators, what you find roughly is there was an increase in global inequality uh, until from the, the early 19th century until the 1950s, then some stabilization, and then a decline at the end of the 20th century. And this uh, is can be also observed if you just don't take into account uh, within country inequality, because these figures are highly elusive. So if you just think of uh, inequality in terms of average incomes of, across countries, you get roughly the same picture. Even though you could say, you know, the main source of inequality in the 19th century was within countries' inequality, and today, as Branko Milanovic insists, is where you are from, you, you are born, is what makes the difference. In in the case of of of, of uh, human development. Uh, what what you find is is very interesting because, of course, it, when we talk about inequality, and this is something we tend to forget, but but the average citizen doesn't. The average citizen sometimes says, "Well, you're talking about a declining uh, inequality, but you're thinking of relative inequality, which means how what is the ratio to the mean, okay? But the absolute distance also matters." I mean, you, if everybody increases 10%, well, in relative terms, we are even, but in, in absolute terms, those at the top are richer. So I've, I've done this kind of estimate for human development in these dimensions, and I found, for instance, that a human development, these components behave in different fashions, but, but to give you a summary, inequality increased up to the 20th century, and certainly declined from the late 1920s to the present. Okay, If you think in terms of absolute inequality, it increased up to 1960 and has declined ever since. This is not what happens with GDP per head. And this has to do with these differential elements that those who reject the idea that a uh, well, well-being uh, is just. Uh, it, it, I mean, w- those who have set the view that well-being can be proxy very 
satisfactorily with GDP tend to, to forget. For instance, why, what, what is a ma- major driver of inequality in, in the world before, in terms of human development before uh, World War I or before 1900? A very important element, which is that medical advances are very unevenly distributed. The so-called uh, epidemiological transition, that in a nutshell is that the main cause of death is not uh, infectious disease, but chronic disease. This cha- the whole picture changes from the late 19th century in the advanced world with the discovery of the germ theory of disease. But this germ theory of disease diffuses very slowly um, initially in, develop- in advanced countries. It's like modern advances in medicine today, fighting cardiovascular and respiratory diseases. The, the technology is, is known, but the human capital and the physical capital sometimes is not there in the developing world, so they don't have access. The same happened uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century with the epidemiological transition. And here there are two interesting elements. One is that people say, well, this means vaccines. This means sulfa drugs. This means antibiotics. And you have very distinguished distinguished papers, for instance, by Daron Asimolu and and, and Simon uh, Johnson in the JPE, in which they claim that basically all the advances took place after World War II. Uh, And this is because international organizations uh, help to diffuse, uh, to to expand the the use of modern drugs. What we know from history, and this is an interesting part of of the book, is that the advances in, 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 in medical knowledge not only act through disembodied technologies in new medicines, but also in preventing preventing the diffusion of disease, the spread of disease. So just things like don't sleeping with animals, washing your hands before eating or after going to the loo, women resting after having babies. All this reduces maternal death and infant mortality. And this is the main ingredient of increases in, 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 in life expectancy at birth. So you find the paradox that in sub-Saharan Africa before independence, in colonial India, when colonial India before independence was economically stagnant, or in Franco Spain in, in the 1940s when the country was cut off from the rest of the world under autarkic policies, or that Jamaica in the 1920s and 30s that was a stagnant economy, they had remarkable improvements in health. Due not to new drugs, because they couldn't afford them, but because they knew how to prevent the spread of disease. And the same happens with education. Education is also driven by by things like nation building, um, creating more inclusive societies, realizing that in advanced countries, education could be a, so, a, a social ladder. So there are different elements. So basically, my point in, in the book is that 
And this is what explains the different behavior between GDP and human development, but also the different distribution, well distribution of GDP and, and human development and these dimensions is, <clears throat> is exactly uh, uh, this. As economists, we tend to think in very stagnant terms. For instance, we tend, tend to think, just imagine the comparison of years of life expectancy and per capita income. You expect that life expectancy goes up as per capita income goes up. This is something that Samuel Preston found in 1975. If you do that 10 years later, you also find this correlation but what you find is that the levels of the levels of life expectancy that correspond to each to the same levels of per capita income are higher now. If you replicate this with education or with freedom, you tend to get the same results. So my point is that you have two kinds of movements in any health, education, or freedom function. There are movements along the curve that are highly determined by per capita income in terms of health. If you're richer, you're better fed, and you are better public services. But there is another element. When you have this dramatic improvement across the board in the first half of the 20th century, that includes countries in which there was no active government policies, in which there was no welfare state where no, there was no wealth enough to purchase the new drugs. Why was that? Because there was a, an outward shift in the function. And this outward shift in the function had to do with new knowledge. New knowledge that was embodied and disembodied medical technologies in the case of health. But you can think in the same terms uh, in terms of education, you know, new ideas, new ideas about inclusiveness, new ideas about nation building in Latin America and so many are in the US. So what you have is this outward shifts in the function. And this is what explains that you cannot have a kind of reductionist approach saying, you know, you're richer, you're going to be healthier. You're richer, you're going to be better educated or freer, you know, the modernization theory is much more complex. And you can have setbacks as well. So you have the, the two things. But in the long run, I mean, looked from a 150 years perspective, outward shifts is what drive have driven the improvement in, in human development. So that, this is the basic message of uh, poorly explained, but in imperfect Spanish, as you can see. <laughs> I mean, it's a book that has so many elements that, um, I mean, just summarizing it, it's, it's a very challenging task. So, and I think you've done that perfectly here. Um, but then as we're running out of time, I, I want to ask you just one final question that probably builds on this um, reflection that you just made related to how economics can be a very static um, mindset to think about long-term phenomena and history or economic history could have a better grasp on, on those type of processes. And, and so the question I want to ask you is how do you perceive the future of 
of the discipline of economic history, considering that it seems that it's being absorbed by economics. And, and I would like to hear if you coincide with this uh, view, but how do you think that the field is going to evolve in the coming decades? And here I want you also to think about, and I don't know how important you think this would be, the technological change that we're experiencing and how this has an impact and how we collect data and how we analyze data. So suddenly now we have that tons and tons of information that was in archives is now visible to be exploited systematically. And probably that was not the case uh, uh, even a few years ago. Um, but anyways, how, how do you think about this? What When you talk to your students, how do you like think about this? Wonderful question and very difficult to to answer. Uh, I, I mentioned before Stefano Fenante already, but you know, in, in he died he, suddenly, as you know, a few years ago, and and before that, he wrote a very uh, pessimistic assessment of geometric achievements. He was calling it, it was spleen was uh, citing a very famous poem by Baudelaire, the French poet. And basically, he had a lot of arguments, and one of them was that uh, economic historians have failed on every aspect, basically, but one, a very important one, was not taking seriously the collection and the selection of the evidence they use, and delegating into uh, research and experienced research assistants, as economists do. So he was very much against that. And this is obviously a major risk now that the, the cost of gathering information, economic costs are low, but, but obviously the opportunity cost for academics of doing, you know, nobody could do probably what people in my generation or earlier, you know, what Charles Feinstein did or, you know, uh, with the due distances myself for, for GDP in the case of Spain, Spending 10 years of your life, academic life, doing that has a huge opportunity cost these days. So this is a risk uh, Stefano Fenaltea noticed is important. Uh, There is another interesting reflection uh, by Bob Margo a few years ago uh, about this reconciliation of economics and economic history. And Bob Margo was saying, Cleometricians in the early days, in the late 50s and 60s, were trying to find a way of preserving the historical dimension of economic history and trying to contribute to economics. And he was saying, and Margot was uh, concluding, to some extent, the first generation of geometricians were slowing down the process of integration of economic history into economics, which is something that I found extremely, extremely attractive. But since I'm an, uh, uh, an optimist by, by, by birth, let me tell you that I think our salvation is in thinking big. If when you see, you know, in the old days, the research agenda of economic historians was written by our elders, economic historians. 
Now, the, the research agenda is written by non-economic historians. Could be Darona Semoglu, Odet Galor, uh, Branko Milanovic, you name it. But the agenda is elsewhere. But if you go deep into this agenda, you discover the ideas not of dead economists, but of dead economic historians. I mean, think, for instance, in Asimolo, Johnson and Robinson uh, acclimated paper about the rise of Europe. In, in, the, in the rise of Europe, one of the interesting points they make is it, it was not the primitive accumulation of capital through colonial trade and slavery, something that, jo, uh, that, that Joachim Ford is vindicating these days. It, it's the, the emergence of a merchant class that has a say and has a voice in the parliament, in the British parliament. You know, this is Fernand Brodel's views from the 70s or 60s, you know. Fernand Brodel was a Gaullist and certainly not a Marxist. So he was having his own view. Or ideas of Gershengren. I mean, there, there is a, a, also books and papers by Asimolo, Johnson and Robinson based on Gershengren's idea. So what I think is has been our value added is not simply our number crunching. You know, I hope people keep using my GDP estimates for Spain for for years to come. But the main contribution we make is the contribution of new ideas and bold interpretations. And thinking big is what is it, it would save the profession. I was very pessimistic when I was reacting to to Stefano Fenaltea's paper, but I, I, in the in the conference World Conference of Economic History in Paris. I saw uh, some interesting developments, and I've seen more and more, in which young people have bold ideas about big historical issues. Uh, Of course, they don't know enough history, and they don't care enough about history, and they are horrified about mm, uh, having uh, sleep in, in their econometrics. So presentations are appalling because uh, once they tell you, you taste the, f- the, the, the flavor of this great idea, they interrupt the presentation and tell you everything you, 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 you want to read in an appendix, but you don't want to hear about the ident- identification strategy. And once you are exhausted, they tell you what happens with the re- regression results, but they never go back to the story. So... I think there has been a very important step, which is thinking big. You know, as I, I, I heard papers about what were the institutional consequences of the uh, uh, Euphrates and Tigris rivers splitting, or the construction of the Egyptian pyramids on institutions. I think that's fantastic, big questions, but give big answers as well, not just, don't, don't give me the econometrics, but I think there are steps in in a good direction. And the other thing is that for many years, economic history was about 
uh, assessing the impact of institutions, policies, ideas. And now you have what Gareth Austin called the compression of history, which is you have an event and something happened 500 years later. You know, this uh, I remember in, in, in a conference in, in Argentina, uh, Cormac Ograda gave the perfect definition. It, he said, this is the geometric version of predestination. You know, you have this shock and everything is already determined. And whether you have new technologies, new policies, new institutions, nothing is going to change. And I think our challenge is to say, well, that's a fantastic hypothesis, but tell us how persistence is maintained. Don't tell me that you have a new econometric trick to, to, to confirm that persistence is there. Tell me why. And tell me why in this case it works and it doesn't work in the other. I mean, Melissa Dell's paper are amazing, but as an economic historian, I want to know more. So I'm not against this new approach because I think they are raising big questions and putting amazing hypotheses, but we need to go the extra mile and to to see, well, no, there was a, uh, just to finish with this, a very interesting paper by Mauricio Drelichman, uh, 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 Joachim Fott, uh, and Jordi Vidal-Roberts that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science recently about the, the impact of the Inquisition in, in long-term uh, uh, performance of Spain, basically, you know, whether it was social capital or not. You know, this is <clears throat> a f- fascinating new way of approaching things. But you cannot just stop short of the proper story. You have to tell us what was the impact over time of the Inquisition. Don't you know, I've, I think it's very interesting to say, you know, uh, uh, the uh, Inquisition is correlated with the rise of Carlism, you know, uh, as these uh, anti-liberals in Spain. Or I would, would go a step further and say, well, and the Inquisition is correlated with this uh, anti-liberal uh, reaction to liberalism and is also correlated with regional nationalism in Spain these days. But the more important question is to what extent the Inquisition explains the, the, the other side of, of the, 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 the mirror image of uh, Western Europe, Northwestern Europe, that was Spain in the early modern period. When Joel Mukir tell us all this uh, scientific revolution that took place in some countries but didn't take place in, for instance, Spain. Well, there is a role for the Inquisition. So tell us, you know, it's very interesting that they ended up reducing social capital in, in, the, in the 1970s. But in the meantime, mm-hmm. tell me what has happened. Uh, so this is, you know, my compromise between the conventional uh, economic historian rejection of this uh, persistence literature I think it's, it's a first, uh, it's a good first step, but we cannot stop there.
uh, that, that would be so to to answer more precisely the question i think there is a lot it's a great future for economic history firstly because in most in most of the world most of the world is not the primary elections next tuesday in the us that's very important for the rest of us but most of the people in in in, in the world are concerned about the supply of of uh, uh, running water okay so I think economic history has m much to say about current challenges of most of the world, people in the world, because the, the past is connected to the issues, uh, the present issues, uh, is, is highly informative. So I think in so far, economic history is connected to the, the, the debates and the problems and the challenges we face in our societies, and not only in the advanced societies, but in all societies today, Economic history has much to say. If at the same time we go back to putting big questions and we are more rigorous in the sense that not just saying this is predestination in geometric version, but we have this result and now we have an agenda for research which is explaining why, then there is a great future for economic history. Great. I mean, I'm very happy that we finished our conversation with the stake that I'm sure many people in our field could uh, relate to or have thought about this uh, at some point. So I'm very glad that we had the chance of having this very broad conversation on how we do economic well, history. Much, uh, I hope they understand me <laughs> because when I get excited, <laughs> my English gets even worse. <laughs> I have the same problem, and I, I think my listeners are used to that, so don't worry about it. This was fascinating. I really enjoyed talking to you. I enjoyed reading your book. I think it's uh, indeed a contribution that is going to help us to think about well-being in the long term. So I'm, I'm very optimistic on, on, on that as well. So thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for being thanks, here. Thanks to you. It's um, been a great pleasure. And uh, it's great that, that it was an opportunity to see, see each other, although Alejandra wasn't here <laughs> this time. <laughs> but I hope that we can see each other again. Again. And, uh, and if you come to Spain or if I go to, to, to California, I certainly we'll get in touch. Thank You're you very, very much, much for your kind invitation. Thank you. Bye-bye.